Welcome back to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, optimal brain health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. So there was an attempt to deny that it was a gene therapy tech. And the reason was, is because if it is a gene therapy tech, then the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies failed to perform their necessary testing according to their own regs. And so they had to deny that that was the case and make this absurd statement that this is just like any other vaccine. Dr. Malone, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to spend some time with me and letting me speak both with you and with your your viewership. Absolutely. I mean, I've been following you for a long time, your information. And to be honest, it's so refreshing to have someone that can ask questions and really kind of get to the bottom and the truth. So I appreciate your work so much. Um, I think it would be helpful for the listeners to kind of walk through a little bit of your backstory. So how did you get started in medicine? And and what have you done that kind of, of course, makes you such an expert in the field? How did I get started? Well, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now, so that's a long time ago. Uh, I was a bent arrow. Uh, is the phrase that's used. Uh, matter of fact, first time I heard that was when I interviewed for a position in in a medical school in Cleveland uh, so many years ago. Oh wow! And uh, so what that means is that I didn't go straight from high school to college to medical school. I I was actually a carpenter and a farmhand after high school and through high school uh, and then decided to turn my life around, went to a community college uh, starting in January of 1980 and kind of bootstrapped my way up. So I'm not a silver spoon born of somebody with a lot of money, et cetera. I took on a lot of student debt um, and uh, about to celebrate my 44th wedding anniversary with my wife of uh, uh, since high school, uh, who has a PhD now and has been my partner all the way through this. Uh, my mother, the tr- honest truth is that uh, my mother and father, when I, I was born at this old Stanford hospital and uh, to a teacher from Mills and an engineer from Stanford and that were living in Palo Alto. And for whatever reason, as a very young child, they decided to get me IQ tested and I kind of pegged the needle. And since then, they always kind of laid this trip on me. And I'm saying this as a cautionary note for parents, don't do this to your children, uh, that I somehow owed something to the world. And and uh, I had this gift and I had to make something of myself. And they set really high expectations, which meant that I was pretty much guaranteed to be failure. Uh, and um, so don't do that to your children. <laughs> but uh, uh, my mom really thought that I should be a physician. She also thought that somehow I should win the Nobel Prize. I don't know how that was supposed to happen, but uh, so this was this was kind of what was put into my brain. And uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to track that path. I didn't want to be 
uh, competitive academic. I didn't want to work for the military, et cetera, which is what my father and my father-in-law did. And, uh, but when I decided to go back to school, it was in my brain. And, and I was, uh, for the first two years, a computer science student and really knocked it out of the park. But I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a basement looking at a computer monitor. So I like to say, now I, now I spend all my time looking at a computer monitor like you do and everybody else. Mm-hmm. But I make about 10% of what I would have made if I'd stayed in computer science. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so to in the... In the early 80s, to imagine that you would get into medical school was a crazy thought for somebody like me. It just didn't happen. I mean, that's like lightning striking, insanely competitive. And uh, but it was it was something that I wanted to strive for. I had a fallback plan of learning the skills of this emerging new discipline called molecular biology and molecular virology. And I thought that the chance of me getting into medical school was pretty small. But I went to work for a pathologist who eventually became uh, department chair at the School of Medicine at Davis. And I just, I had a passion for bench research. And it worked really hard, got a paper out, did, you know, all that I was asked to do and more. And he wrote such a strong recommendation letter that I ended up getting a MD-PhD scholarship and get accepted to multiple medical schools. So then I was in it. And uh, I. the question was, at that point, I was really well-versed in the latest in retroviruses, retrovirology, because of the lab I'd come from, which is a, a mouse memory tumor virus lab, which is a, a retrovirus that causes breast cancer in mice. And so I wanted to do something with my knowledge of retroviruses. And the the thing at the time was that this was the leading tech for doing gene therapy, particularly for children with genetic diseases. And so I decided that that was the ticket. That's the thing I could do uh, was, was spend my career as a gene therapist curing inborn errors, genetic errors in children. Uh, it didn't play out that way, uh, and retroviruses turned out to really no gene therapy is working very well. But that's that's what got all that started. Well, first of all, it's amazing because it sounds like the vision that your mother had. I mean, you're really on the way. You've done most of it, so that that's incredible. And thank you for sharing your story. So you became, I think, you know really, really talked about a ton when you did Rogan and you had some thoughts on um, the vaccines. You know, we know that these vaccines were really pushed on on many, many people. And so can you give us just like a little bit of a synopsis, what your thoughts were at the time and why it caused such a stir? Uh, so the Rogan hit, which I'm told may have, may may be the largest podcast in history. I, I, don't know the numbers, but rumor has it it's north of 100 million views. Uh, all I know is that I get fist bumps from 20-something, always guys, uh, which is a kind of an odd thing. Um, and it wasn't the first, actually the first, what for me was a big podcast was the Brett Weinstein, Steve Kirsch, Dark Horse podcast, in which I also talked about some of the regulatory issues. And at that time, we had had this uh, common technical document, this regulatory dossier that had 
uh, been obtained by a Canadian scientist, vaccinologist named Byron Bridal from Japan that showed very clearly how uh, norms had been circumvented, uh, gently put, in uh, development of the product and uh, the failure to perform the normal testing for genotoxicity, reproductive toxicology, uh, biodistribution, um, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Um, none of that stuff was really properly done. Uh, and I spoke about that with Steve and Brett. I like to say, you know, three old men sitting around a table for two hours and it went viral. Uh, that was pretty weird. On Rogan, uh, I said a number of things that really triggered uh, various uh, groups. I mentioned that there were these perverse incentives uh, for hospitals to overdiagnose both death and disease from COVID using the PCR testing, often with uh, high cycle numbers, and uh, the perverse financial incentives to use this very aggressive treatment protocol involving ventilation and remdesivir. Uh, that was considered controversial, but then has since been validated. Uh, I mentioned this, this three-word phrase that caused uh, Google to and really all of Silicon Valley to lose their cookies, which was mass formation uh, psychosis. And this had to do really with the psyops that has been deployed globally. And now that is well-documented also that uh, we've had military-grade psychological operations technologies designed for offshore combat deployed against the civilian populations, particularly in the Five Eyes uh, allies states. So that's Great Britain, Canada, United States, New Zealand, and Australia. And uh, it's no wonder that people have become hypnotized because they've been subjected to literally three years now of weapons-grade psyops uh, by, in many cases, by military divisions, also by Department of Homeland Security and others. And, and we've now seen with the Twitter files, the documentation of the uh, close integration of uh, the government, Trusted News Initiative, and uh, um, tech and corporate media uh, to uh, promote these various narratives. And of course, there's these uh, amazing historic artifacts from early in the outbreak with these Broadway-like productions and, and dancing comics, uh, uh, Colbert being an example. Uh, and what, that's really uh, the most obvious part of what was a global deployment of, of cash uh, to purchase the endorsement by influencers and artists all over the world, all simultaneous. So I spoke about, about the mass formation, the preconditions, uh, the work of Hannah Arndt, and of course, Matthias Desmet, which is a 21st century update of the work of the philosopher Hannah Arndt and Yus Malors. And this provoked this backlash uh, with claims that uh, this was all made up. It wasn't in the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for, 
for uh, mental disease, which of course is about individuals, not about group psychology. And so that was a, really a non sequitur. Uh, and even most fascinatingly, there was an article, I think it was in the Daily Mail, as I recall, in the UK, in which they had a, quote, expert uh, speaking about that this was uh, all made up, this term, it had no merit. And uh, what they failed to note was the expert that was being quoted was one of their top nudge unit people, researchers. Uh, the UK nudge unit has since apologized, as has the UK government, uh, for deploying this kind of psychological tactics on the British civilian population. So it was actually one of the researchers behind the technology that was criticizing me outing. Basically, I, I in a sense, I doxed uh, his program. Uh, and then he criticized it as basically fake news when, in fact, it had been a major thrust of his research program. So it was a you know a number of these things of just talking frankly about what was really happening, what was happening in hospitals, also early treatment, uh, and and what had been done with early treatment, what was known. Uh, the uh, there are many studies at the time that I was citing that were suggesting that a very large fraction of the uh, attributable deaths could have been avoided with early treatment rather than the remdesivir uh, high pressure ventilation protocols that were being endorsed. I spoke a little bit about Tony Fauci and, and my experiences with him in history. Uh, so it was a wide ranging, as you recall, two to three hour discussion. And then uh, I forgot the whole reason that I was supposed to be on. Uh, I got so involved in talking to Mr. Rogan, who I just found to be a fascinating person. I was very much in the moment with him uh, and uh, forgot that I was supposed to be pushing the Defeat the Mandates rally in D.C. that was held January, so a little less than a month after that hit. And so we had to go back in the studio which is why in the last segment you see him with his dog. And by the way, his dog's name is Snoop. So it's Snoop the dog, uh, which belongs to his daughter, as I recall. So we we came out and he was holding Snoop. And then we decided we had to go back in and, and cut the little punch uh, for the Defeat the Mandates rally. Well, that's, that's good that you got to add that in there. Um, so we just broke down so many different things from – your opinion on, you know, the vaccine. And can you give the listeners, and if you guys want to listen to your and Rogan's three-hour conversation, you know, they can always go to Spotify. But um, Wait, just by the way, it's really hard to find. You cannot find it if you search Google. Uh, you'll never get there. It's very hard to find if you search Spotify's search engine. You have to know the actual number of the Rogan hit, which I think was 1757, cross-check that. But that's you You need to look for Rogan episode 1757 if you want to find it, because you can't put in Rogan and Malone, you'll never get there. Yeah, and I definitely, I want to talk about what happened after and, and all of the kind of the censorship on Twitter, but will you just break down for us a little bit? So well, you mentioned that the vaccines weren't as rigorously tested as they should have been right before mandating. Can you can you describe in your experience what typically would be done versus what was done in this case? So there are, are really international regs 
as well as FDA regs and a number of documents that relate to uh, the regulatory processes, both non-clinical and clinical, that most vaccine products go through, as well as those that most gene therapy-related products go through. There are actually two different checklists. And so any material that genetically modifies uh, a person has to go through enhanced uh, rigorous testing, including uh, testing to see whether or not it, there can be any shedding. So reproductive toxicology, genotoxicity, and then of course the standards that are applied to any biologic material, you have to know how much, where the, where the product goes, how much uh, the biologically active substance is produced in the case of a gene therapy product, uh, where it's produced, whether it has any toxic effects. You have to assess the potential toxicity of each component. You have to demonstrate that each component contributes to the overall effect, the therapeutic benefit. You have to demonstrate purity, identity, uh, reproducibility, uh, um, potency of the manufacturing process and the product. Virtually none of these things were done to any kind of uh, historic international standards. And so that's left us in a position where the, for instance, the vaccine companies and the federal government made various assertions to the general population, including your patients, that these products when injected would stay in the deltoid and transit just to the draining lymph nodes. That was a lie. Uh, that they, the quote mRNA, which is not really mRNA, it's a synthetic molecule that has pseudouridine in place of uridine. Uh, and that makes it very different biologically. It has a very long half-life and it makes it more immunosuppressive. None of that was characterized, the effects of those modifications. And physicians such as yourself and, and other medical care providers were told that this mRNA, quote unquote, that's not really mRNA, would only last for a couple of hours in your patient's bodies. That was a lie. And we now know they never actually did the studies to show rigorously where it goes, how long it makes protein, how much protein it makes, how long the uh, polynucleotide sticks around, whether the formulation itself has significant toxicity, whether there's any risk of integration or genetic modification of the genome of cells that take it up. None of that stuff was done. Uh, and it was rationalized by saying that these products aren't gene therapy-based products, they're vaccine products. And what that allowed, it was a kind of a slate of hand. Uh, and what it allowed was the strategy of, we're only going to apply the vaccines checklist as if these were standard vaccines. Uh, and, you know, such as a, a whole inactivated influenza virus or something like that, or a purified subunit vaccine. But these are absolutely not. They're totally new technology. But uh, in, in totally new technology, which both Moderna and uh, BioNTech's prior Security and Exchange Commission filings 
had acknowledged was a gene therapy-based product. They acknowledged that in their risk-based statements for their SEC disclosures. And yet, when I spoke on Rogan, another thing that I said was that these are gene therapy products. That that was fact-checked and rigorously denied, et cetera, but it clearly was, um, and they clearly are. And, and uh, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm perhaps in the best position to make that statement because I did the initial patent disclosures for the tech and have uh, nine issued patents specifically talking about mRNA vaccines, including mucosal mRNA vaccines. So I think I have the credibility to say, yeah, this came out of a gene therapy lab and it was intended as a gene therapy technology and the use of it for vaccines was the leading indication or what the venture capitalists would call the low-hanging fruit because you don't have to make much protein uh, to have a good immune response. The immune system amplifies the biologic response. Whereas trying to cure muscular dystrophy, which was something that one of my collaborators tried to do for years, John Wolf, and completely failed at, the product technology is not sufficiently uh, effective, efficient to uh, make any impact on muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis, and we could go on and on, the classic uh, inborn errors of pediatric disease. So uh, so there was an attempt to deny that it was a gene therapy tech, and the reason was is because if it is a gene therapy tech, then the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies failed to perform uh, their necessary testing according to their own regs, uh, and so they had to deny that that was the case and make this absurd statement that this is just like any other vaccine. And you may recall in 2020, 2021, we had a lot of that kind of messaging coming out that this is just like any other vaccine, you know, usually from the naive, often from hospitals or physicians that didn't know what the heck they were talking about. So have I answered that question? Yes. No, you definitely did. I guess... I think people are so confused because when you have it in your own disclosures of what it is, but then try to say it's something else, who who makes these calls or how does that really happen? Uh, good question. Uh, how does the propaganda happen? Because that's what it was. And uh, how how does the accepted narrative get created? So in part, this is defined by the Trusted News Initiative, as I mentioned, is managed by the British Broadcasting Corporation and ties together all of the major media and tech all over the world. So Agency France Press, um, the major UK uh, newspapers, all the American standard news outlets, CNN, um, Yahoo, Google, uh, YouTube, uh, um, Twitter, uh, et cetera, all the ones that we've uh, grown accustomed to, they all belong to the Trusted News Initiative, which was ostensibly built to uh, create a barrier to Russian misinformation and electoral manipulation. And then shortly after it was deployed in that way, it was retooled, repurposed for res uh, blocking vaccine mis or disinformation. And it has a number of rules uh, 
participants or there it's kind of almost a a trade organization and also a treaty if you belong to it you're allowed to publish an article about a forbidden topic you know one that is you're allowed to take a position frankly that differs from the world health organization or your local uh, health authority like the cdc you can as a as a member of the trusted news initiative you're allowed to publish such an article but the agreement is that no one else will republish it and for any third parties such as you or i if we speak on social media or otherwise uh, about things or theories hypotheses interpretations which are different from that of the world health organization or the cdc then we are labeled as spreading myths or dis or malinformation that's the definition uh misinformation being that it differs but it's not politically motivated we just have a difference of opinion that's misinformation disinformation is we're pushing out information which differs from the approved narrative and there's some political objective associated with that and malinformation is fascinating i'm using the definitions provided by the department of homeland security all three of these in their uh statement about this are defined as domestic terrorism by the way um according to homeland security but the uh malinformation can be true or false but if it causes people to have questions about their government then that's considered malinformation so if you're saying true things that cause people to question the cdc or the nih uh that's called uh malinformation uh and again is is considered domestic terrorism according to homeland security so that's how this all got going and that is the gatekeeper uh that is basically reinforced this across all platforms and then there's been other i'm just writing an essay right now about uh the methods that have been deployed to uh also reinforce this through advertising channels and so uh there's a thing called the garm agreement uh um which uh maps into adsense the garm agreement establishes basically the same criteria of what's allowed speech and if a a broadcaster or a, a website or whatever um doesn't follow the garm agreement then they cannot be allowed to plug into adsense which is this google monopoly of all advertising and so they're they're demonetized this is why youtube demonetizes people all the time is they're perceived in some way as violating the garm agreement and so youtube has to demonetize them because otherwise they would be having advertisers um presenting their ads uh on websites or or an association with tweets or whatever or youtube videos that uh um are violating the terms of this agreement about what is allowed speech and that turns out to be the most insidious most people don't recognize that that's what's going on uh is that a lot of this censorship is occurring at the level of this kind of economic deplatforming in addition to the direct 
manipulation by the U.S. government through its various intelligence agencies and homeland security entities that we've seen now with the Twitter files where they're directly interacting. And then, of course, we have the documentation. I think one of the most egregious examples uh, is involves um, Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA commissioner who uh, took he left the FDA uh, took a two-month vacation and then joined Pfizer. And uh, his he he was FDA commissioner. Um, uh, then two one or two ranks above him would be assistant secretary for health. Uh, um, and then then director of health and human services, the cabinet level. So that's one step below cabinet level. Uh, and um, Brett Gior. Uh, formerly, I think, Texas A&M or University of Texas, I forget which, who is, uh, you know, deep, deep uh, in uh, biodefense, very senior uh, ranking person in biodefense, had tweeted out that uh, the benefits of natural immunity from recovery from natural infection. And Scott Gottlieb directly contacted Twitter and got them to suppress that tweet uh, because it was basically putting at risk uh, the Pfizer vaccine product. Um, so that's that's a real clear case of where you had industry through a revolving door government official uh, directly censoring speech of another even more senior government official. I mean, it's 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 madness what we've seen over the last three years. It's absolutely circumventing the First Amendment uh, in a wholesale fashion. And I don't know what the remedy is. There's the, I don't see that these people are going to be held accountable, frankly. It's rather depressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I feel like even just on social media, I, I don't know if it's just the people that I follow, but constantly there's fact checking at the bottom or in your case just i mean talk to me about how you got removed from twitter do you do you yet know it's been a while i think do you know do. exactly what yeah, oh, you i do. do i do know what my sin was okay uh and fascinating uh was that uh for some reason uh on within 24 hours both linkedin where i had about 150,000 followers and Twitter, in which I had about 500,000 followers, deplatformed me two days before I did the Rogan interview. Uh, so uh, there is the appearance that they might have had some foreshadowing that that was going to happen, uh, because certainly the timing was auspicious and they both acted in a coordinated fashion. Uh, uh, there's a, a meme that was circulated uh, around that time uh, in which the my resemblance to the guy that sells Dosecki's beer, uh, that you know, this most interesting man in the world commercial series. Somebody took and did a deep fake where they put my face over that, and uh he's he's holding his Dosecki's and he says, I don't always get I don't always lose half a million followers on Twitter, but when I do, I pick up 50 million on Rogan. Uh okay. and and it was absolutely a Streisand effect. I had already um, moved over to Getter. That's another thing that I spoke about on Rogan was Getter as an alternative to Twitter. 
And uh, I had already started Substack. My, you know, I've been doing Substack. Steve Kirsch had recommended it to me uh, about two months before. And my Substack subscriptions exploded. Uh, and and so did my getter followers right after that. Uh, the apparently the sin, uh, the sin came out. Uh, another couple of physicians that I knew uh, in California tried to sue Twitter to get back on, and they asked me to join their case. So I did. Brian Tyson being the lead. Uh, Tyson being one of the two physicians that saved thousands and thousands of lives in uh, largely Latino immigrant uh, farm workers uh, in the Imperial Valley uh, with early treatment. But uh, they tried to get back on Twitter because they also got deplatformed and filed a lawsuit using the same arguments that was used for the Alex Berenson case. But the California judge would not accept those arguments. And so we were faced with uh, um, an anti-slap action, which would have cost us millions of dollars, or agreeing never to sue Twitter again. Uh, and in the course of that, during the discovery phase, it was revealed what my sin had been, which was that I had reposted uh, a video from Canadian COVID Care Alliance uh, that had the title safe and effective question mark that was still one of the most rigorous assessments of the Pfizer clinical data at that time, uh, the data that supported the uh, emergency use authorization and pointed out all the flaws and misrepresentations in the data analysis. And uh, that retweeting that video was uh, my terminal sin uh, that caused me to get deplatformed. Wow. Well, I'm. I'm. I guess I'm glad that you know now. But I mean, this is. I mean, I don't even have words for it to be honest. Um, yeah. But at least you it's, know. I mean, it's good information. Yeah. It's. It's the whole thing is pretty sick. Uh, you know, anybody that has taken any train in trading in bioethics, I guess, with the exception of Anthony Fauci's uh, wife. Um, looks at all of this and and has to be, uh, well, that's not true. I mean, a, a number of leading bioethicists uh, made the case that this heavy-handed totalitarian approach was uh, justified. Hmm. And uh, it, maybe it might have been justified had uh, – SARS-CoV-2 had a true morbidity and mortality akin to, say, Ebola. Uh, I think I think that if we had had a, a respiratory Ebola, as was once posited uh, by um, an epidemiologist from Michigan, as I recall, uh, back during the West African first West African Ebola outbreak. Uh, if we had had a, a respiratory Ebola, um, back then the estimate was that there would be a billion people dead, when that's with a B, uh, worldwide. And uh, if that had been the case, uh, I suspect that there people would have lined up for a partially effective vaccine that had significant toxicity. Uh, you follow what I'm saying? Yes, uh, I but, do. 
But but this is not that virus, right? It was nowhere near that pathogenic. A matter of fact, it doesn't even scratch the surface of how deadly the uh, Spanish flu was, whatever the Spanish flu was. It, you know, a lot of people, the case can be made that it was both viral and uh, microbial, uh, a combined infection. But in any case, the mortality associated with Spanish flu was many, many fold greater than what we've seen with this virus. Uh, but it was sold to us and pitched to us and modeled by the likes of uh, the Imperial College in London as something that was really scary. And it was promoted to the, all of your patients and you know the, the world uh, and the politicians that uh, there was going to be massive death associated with this and that the vaccine was their only hope. Of course, all of that was lies. Uh, we now can see that. And even Bill Gates recently in a clip acknowledges, uh, he uses the imperial we, uh, um, we overestimated the risks associated with the virus and we overreacted, uh, I think is the uh, paraphrasing his recent statements. But uh, that's all fine and dandy in retrospect but meanwhile, our society has been trashed. Uh, our children have been profoundly damaged uh, through the use of masks and, and deferred education. Our economies have been destroyed. Uh, suicide rates went through the roof, depression, um, families torn apart. I mean, the damage to society and to individuals and to community groups has been profound. And I don't see how we can just walk away and, uh, you know, uh, forgive and forget uh, after after what's been done here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that being said, how do we move forward? A, let's cover one more thing really quick. What are the known, what are the I guess maybe top five side effects. I know that there's all sorts of side effects um, surfacing, but if you wouldn't mind to share maybe like the top five and then how we might be able to move forward from this. So this is a idiosyncratic personal ranking, I guess. You're asking me off. I haven't uh, seen a list compiled of uh, incidents to be able to say this. Obviously the myocarditis was the earliest one that was accepted as a true risk, myocarditis and pericarditis. And those, those risks, depending on how you rank it, if you say clinically significant myocarditis in young male adults, then the data come in in the range of one in 2,000 to one in 3,000. And so uh, that's rare enough that people can go through their lives and not know of somebody. You know, if you typical uh, grade school might be, um, you know, a thousand people, 10,000 people, uh, children. And so you're not going to see an incidence, an episode of myocarditis or clinical myocarditis or pericarditis. But if you do an all of Hong Kong assessment, uh, that's when you see these numbers. Uh, the uh, genesis of that is unclear uh, still. Uh, what is the pathophysiology behind it? And it appears that 
to some extent, it relates to the toxicity of spike protein itself. And some extent, it relates to a, perhaps an autoimmune phenomena, which is known with other viruses also. For instance, the smallpox vaccine causes a fairly high frequency of myocarditis, again, typically in young males. Uh, so there's the direct cardiac damage, and some of that seems to be uh, the lipid nanoparticles may have an increased affinity for uh, some of the key conductive tissue, the AV node and, and the sinoatrial bundle. Uh, there's something about those, that, those heart cells that seem to have an affinity for the um, lipid nanoparticles, which are toxic. There's the, so there's the myocarditis. Uh, early on, it was also detected, but downplayed that uh, there was an increased risk of reactivation of latent DNA viruses. So this is the Epstein-Barr virus uh, flares that you probably saw. Many people talked about uh, that being at the core of long COVID and of the post-vaccination syndrome in many cases. Uh, shingles was another example. Other herpes viruses, other latent DNA viruses. The problem with that underlying it, you could say, okay, we can treat shingles. Uh, shingles is not life-threatening in most cases. Uh, um, is that those viruses are kept in check. And, and I like to use the metaphor of Pandora's box. They're kept in Pandora's box by pressure from largely uh, cytotoxic T lymphocytes and other um, cellular immunity. And so when you see these things coming out, it means likely that they're detecting a danger signal in general, uh, because that's part of what reactivates them when they're in the genome, in the nucleus. And uh, there appears to be a failure of the normal uh, cellular immunity suppression. Okay, so if you have a failure or a deficit in cellular immunity, the other thing, if you're trained in pathology or any of that, you know, is the other thing that is kept in check chronically by your cellular immunity is cancer cells. We all have cancer arising um, uh, sporadically, as they say, uh, if I, as a male, if I live long enough, I will die with prostate cancer. Doesn't mean that it will be what kills me, but it will develop. Um, you know, women have breast cancer and other uh, hormonal cancers arising in their bodies uh, fairly frequently, and their immune systems are able to, to control those. Uh, that's a normal function. So it's no surprise that more and more oncologists and pathologists and uh, cancer surgeons are starting to report what seems to be a troubling trend of uh aggressive cancers, um, reactivation of cancers that they thought were cured, uh, cancers appearing uh, at an age strata that they normally wouldn't, uh, those kinds of things. So uh, myocarditis, uh, T-cell and immune suppression, uh, the coagulopathy is a huge one. And so that means blood clotting. And uh, 
you've heard the hype about the blood clotting uh, from various sources, uh, including these cadavers, uh, um, as well as at autopsy. These are these stringy kind of gray um, rubber band-like uh, blood clots that are even being pulled out in patients. Um, uh, um, those are macro clots. And they're very odd. They have hypercross-linked fibrin that doesn't degrade normally. So that's the very large clots, and they can be thrown as emboli, et cetera. So pulmonary emboli. Uh, spike affects both platelet function and fibrin cross-linking. Uh, and you end up with these hypercross-linked clots, and not only the macro clots, but also micro, kind of looser micro clots, typically on the apparent limb, so arterials leading into the capillary beds. This is if you have if you have patients that uh, are you know typically so a typical profile is a patient who's a high performance athlete who uh, used to function at a very high level, and then uh, suddenly they report that uh, they can they have uh, adequate oxygenation at rest, but then uh, extremely poor exercise tolerance. These are the symptoms of the people that have this kind of microvascular partial blockage so that at rest when they're not really stressed, uh, they have adequate oxygenation and, and they're not building up, you know, metabolic products in their muscles, et cetera. But then as soon as they try to run their 440 or their mile or whatever, suddenly they can't, they just can't function. They crump immediately and they have the a really bad burn. So the, you have these macro clots. You have this kind of gooey uh, afferent limb um, coagulopathy that uh, seems to underpin some of the uh, uh, chronic uh, exercise intolerance or, or low energy kind of states. And then you also, in the same spectrum, uh, you know, the, ac this, the acronym is STEMIs, these ST elevation MIs that are very odd. They're happening in younger people. And this is, you know, all of this feeds into the died suddenly story uh, or unexplained uh, sudden death uh, events in typically younger high-performance athletes and uh, in typically in moments where they're, where they're under stress or, you know, can even be in their sleep, et cetera. But uh, so interventional cardiologists, for the audience, these are the folks that stick the long tube down your neck and into the vessels of your heart. And then uh, these these long tubes typically have a little balloon on the end that can be inflated. And uh, they have kind of a little bit of a point at the end and they can be pushed through normal cardiac blockages for the big vessels in your heart where you've had a, a plaque, you know, these, these cholesterol and other deposits in your main arteries that rupture for some reason or they form a, a clot and um, the interventional cardiologist can thread this through that blockage, blow up the balloon and squish that blockage out to the side. And then they can put a stent in or something like that. These new kind of uh, ST elevation MI STEMIs that are being observed in young people 
um, often have a very anomalous clot that you can't put the bloody catheter through. It's too hard. And so you can never get that little point through. So you can't blow up the balloon. And these folks have to be taken to surgery if they're going to be saved. Um, so those are also another one of these highly cross-linked fibrin clots. So there's that. Now, the one that's worrisome, you know, I've I've long been concerned about the reproductive aspects of this. And uh, um, that was, long, as a woman, you'll appreciate, and a woman uh, healthcare uh, provider, uh, you'll, you may recall uh, that, that this classic mid-century language was deployed, that women that were complaining about menstruation, menstrual irregularities, older women that were postmenopausal suddenly starting to menstruate, that this was all literally they use the word hysteria. And as a medical professional, you know that the root word of hysteria is hyster, which is the word for uterus, which is to say that people with uteruses um, go crazy is the if you want to disambiguate what the term hysteria really means. And so women in particular were told that they couldn't possibly be having these menstrual irregularities. And if they did, it was just transient and et cetera, et cetera. But um, Early on, I testified before a rabbinical court in New York of Orthodox Jewish rabbis that knew very well because they tracked menstruation in their in their um, parishioners or whatever you call it if you're an Orthodox Jew, uh, members of their congregation, uh, because they reproductive health is super important for them. It's a small community, and uh, they knew that this problem of altered menses and delayed menses and prolonged menses and irregular menses were a major issue in, in their cohort. And they made a determination after our testimony that, that they determined that it was illegal, in their opinion, for uh, reproductive age women and uh, children to take these products because of these effects. Now we've had this uh, Project Veritas uh, reveal uh, from this young uh, man who was in his urology residency for a couple of years and dropped out and then was taken up by Pfizer and made a very senior executive, uh, a global director for vaccine strategy, mRNA vaccine strategy, in which he revealed that Pfizer does take the uh, uh, female reproductive risk, seriously, they do believe it's a real problem. He makes forward-looking statements that this has to be s figured out at some point. I mean, if it was me, I would be saying the house is on fire, uh, but they don't seem to have a sense of urgency. What was particularly troublesome is that he has, he seemed to indicate that the leading hypothesis for why this is happening uh, in these reproductive age women is that the products were damaging the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal axis, which is to say the endocrine system, as you know. And uh, if, it, if these products are damaging the endocrine system, and certainly that is one reasonable explanation for uh, menstrual irregularities. Another reasonable explanation is the uh, data that showed in rodents that these products uh, seem to have a particular affinity for ovarian tissue. 
Um, but uh, if if these products are dim- damaging the endocrine system, then that can explain uh, mood irregularities, irregularities of thought, gastrointestinal problems, reproductive problems. A whole range of organ systems can be damaged if you have damage to the endocrine system. And uh, just as with uh, coagulopathy, you can damage virtually any organ in your body, including your brain. Uh, And then on top of that, you have the fact that the spike protein, which is being produced at abnormally high levels, even compared to natural infection, uh, is biologically active, right? It binds ACE2. It activates that pathway, which is another central regulatory pathway in the body. Uh, It also is very sticky. Um, and so it binds to normal proteins and triggers autoimmune disease, such as we see with this paradoxical um, uh, um, uh, thrombotic uh, thrombocytopenia, where you're having uh, platelets depleted and yet abnormally high levels of clotting. And you can show directly that spike protein activates platelets in very odd ways in, you know, in cell culture or in the test tube. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I guess that would be my short list of bad stuff, uh, is, is the cardiac damage, the coagulopathy, uh, central nervous system damage, including brain inflammation, because the spike protein also opens the blood-brain barrier. So that's allowing toxins and other uh, things that are inflammatory into the brain, which then triggers the microglial response that can lead to the fibrillary tangles uh, that we call Alzheimer's, et cetera. So, you know, pretty much everything. And then then there are these, uh, you know, People talk about visual field defects. That's probably the coagulopathy, but there's uh, a, a significant number of people that have damage to their eyes. And then there's the mundane things like uh, the tinnitus uh, that's you know, and, and dizziness that seem to be really widespread. Uh, um, the, the paradoxical orthostatic uh, hypotension, the POTS, um, narcolepsy, uh, these are all central nervous system uh, phenomena. There, does that give you enough? That that was definitely plenty, um, and just very concerning. You know, in my practice, we're trying to find the root cause to make people feel better, and there are some interesting things that we offer here that have been backed by science to help with um, you know long COVID, but. Maybe, you know, we should continue to communicate and see, because we have to find a way to fix this, right? If there's all this damage. Absolutely. And there there actually is some encouraging stuff going on. So for instance, I'm I'm vaccine damaged. Uh, People say, why, when you knew all this, uh, did you take the jab? Well, I didn't know what I knew then. Uh, Now that I, you know, that wasn't available when I, I was in the first wave of vaccine recipients when the National Guard were putting them out. I wanted to be able to travel internationally and I had long COVID and there was the storyline that this could help with that. Uh, But um, my jab too was one of the bad batches of Moderna. Mm. Uh, So I'm currently just completing the FLCCC recovery protocol. 
uh, that's been supplemented. I'm not making a recommendation. This is not a medical recommendation, but it's been supplemented with natokinase. Uh, natokinase appears to be orally bioavailable and to have uh, properties involved that enable degradation or increased degradation of those hyper cross-linked fibrin clots. Uh, so there's this is right out at the front edge of uh, current research, uh, clinical research and and uh, basic science about what's going on with uh, patients that have both long COVID and post-vaccination syndrome. There's a great paper out from fairly early on that shows that the symptoms of those two things are indistinguishable, the long COVID and, and post-vaccination syndrome in terms of the profile of symptoms are almost completely superimposed. So, so I, I think it's important to communicate to patients that uh, uh, they shouldn't despair, uh, that there are uh, treatment protocols on the horizon. And of course, there's the things that no one has recommended, but they should have, like we should all have our vitamin D levels checked and, uh, you know, maintain a healthy lifestyle, eat healthy, uh, zinc and, and other uh, vitamin and mineral supplements, making sure you're up on all of that. Uh, and I'm sure that's all part of, of the practice from what you've told me that you you manage there. Yes, absolutely. I think that was, you know, the entire last three years. And I know a lot of other healthcare practitioners thought the same thing, but I was genuinely shocked that we never spoke about getting healthier as a country. We only talked about losing weight. I mean, that's the simplest thing. <laughs> yes. And reducing your risk fast factors, right? For becoming ill from any virus. We we never did that. Yeah. I was shocked and as we're and we still have not done that. So I think we missed yeah. a big opportunity there. We created one one solve all, which has seemed to have made more issues. And um yeah, I just I really appreciate your time and your work. And if anything else comes down the pipe for you that you are trying on yourself, please send me a message. So, you know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, that's how I originally discovered famotidine was uh, in desperation after I got infected in Boston in the end of February of 2020. Uh, we'd identified through fancy technology a ranked list of compounds that. Uh, potentially might have benefits. And you, as you know, as a healthcare practitioner, it's generally not ethical to test things on yourself. That's that's looked down upon. And I was rather embarrassed that I did it, but I was desperate. I mean, there was no drugs then, and I thought I was going to die. I felt like dog breath. I, I could use stronger <laughs> language. Um, uh, I felt really bad. And it took a, you know, it's I'm still improving. I'm, my, I, we travel so much, and it seems like we get our most exercise pulling bags through airports. Uh, and yesterday, we just flew back last night, and my wife said to me, "You know, your stride length has improved uh, over the last month. Um, I've lost some weight, and and I've been on this protocol. Uh, so there's there is hope, and there's things we can do, uh, and." Um, and I remember when I was infected, I, you know, my training in pathology and all the work that we were doing as a team, 
I thought that I was going to develop a pulmonary interstitial fibrosis and I was eventually going to die of an emphysema-like syndrome. Uh, and I, I, about six months ago, I had my PFTs run and it turns out that I'm, I'm low normal, but I'm, I'm not going to die of interstitial pulmonary fibrosis anytime soon. Uh, you know, so there was a whole lot of fear and, and I was afraid too uh, early on. And, um, and I, these days when I see folks wearing the mask still, uh, I, my heart goes out to them. I see a lot of people that are still trapped in the fear, uh, that's been promoted. Uh, and, and they, I think, I think we can all agree now that, that those of us that have been following the data that, you don't have to be afraid in that way. A lot of that was just gross overreaction. Yeah, I um, I totally agree. I think if you're listening to this, you know, focus on the core pillars of health and make yourself more robust in general. But I really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Okay, well, thanks for having me on and uh, continue to uh, be brilliant and uh practice integrative medicine. It's the, it's folks like yourselves that have been the real innovators. Uh, and, and I, I salute you. No, oh, right back at you. Thank you. Hacking was created and is hosted by Kayla Barnes. This podcast is for informational purposes only and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.